0: I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 7 through 11, Judges 3, 7 through 11. I don't know exactly what all of you recall of your childhood, particularly with regard to those times of discipline, those times of instruction that were a little less pleasant. I remember a lot because I went through a lot of such times. I went through way too many such times. I was slow and stubborn and did not learn, and so there was a great deal of instruction that was required. One of the things I remember from those times are my parents using words like, this is because we love you. And there were times I scratched my head and went, really? Really? This is your love for me? And it was a bit bewildering. But, of course, I became a parent uh, on my own and realized that part of what you do as a parent is you love your children in and through discipline. You instruct them. You guide them. And you try to protect them. And there are times where discipline, that instruction, comes from things you do to entice them. You know, perhaps some families, you get... All A's and B's on the report card will go out for ice cream. There's an enticement to do what is right. And of course, there's also the, the warning, the punishment that uh, keeps us from going astray, going down the wrong path. If you do X, there will be penalty Y. You're going to lose this privilege. You're going to have to sit in the timeout chair. You're going to get a spanking. Discipline is an act of love. And what we see this morning in our text, in Judges chapter 3, is the Lord's discipline of his people. It is an illustration of how he disciplines us. It is an illustration of how we fail to respond to that discipline. We will see in the text his enticement, his acts of love to bring us, to draw us into a right place. Relationship with him and right behavior under him. And we will see the warning and the punishment that is a part of discipline also meant to keep us from going astray. But most of all, what I hope we will see this morning is the love of God, that God loves us. He loves his people. That discipline is not a sign that God does not love, but on the contrary, it is a sign that he does love us we saw in both our Old and New Testament readings about how discipline is the mark of those who seek, whom God loves and who seek wisdom and knowledge. So without any further ado, let's hear now from the Word of God, Judges chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. (coughs) And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. I want to remind us as we go through Judges When we see that Lord in all capital letters in our English Bibles, that is the proper name of God, Yahweh. And I point that out to set it in contrast because we're going to see in Judges other gods named. And I want to remind us that the name of the true God is in here also. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. They forgot the Lord, their God, and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan rishathaim king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war. And the Lord gave cushan rishathaim king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over cushan rishathaim So the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, guide us in an understanding of this your word, that we may see your love. And how you discipline and save your people. We pray this in Christ's precious name. Amen. I want to break this passage into two parts, not by verses. Very often I'll take it and say, okay, verses X through Y and, and you know, uh, Z through whatever are going to be a certain section. But this time we're going to take all of it and look at two different aspects that overlay all of the verses. We're going to look first at what this tells us about the people of God. And as we consider it, I want to keep reminding us that it is not necessarily a portrayal of all people. That The picture we're going to see here is not of the reprobate, though it's going to feel that way. It's not a picture of, of those who are unrepentant, unregenerate, unsaved, though it's going to feel that way but rather we're going to see a picture of the people of God. And then we're going to go back through the text and take a look at what it tells us about God himself. First, consider what it says about the people, and then consider what it says about God. There are five things that we see as the, what the people do here. Five things. We see a pattern. I, I've chosen to make them alliterate. They're all S's. We have sin, servitude, supplication, serenity, and stupidity. Sin, servitude, supplication, serenity, and stupidity. And I use the word stupidity because it was in that Old Testament reading. There it was in, 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 in the Proverbs reading. The one who despises discipline is stupid. And we're going to see that is precisely what we see of the people of God in this passage. Let's consider those five aspects of the people of God. Verse 7, sin. We see there, what does it say? They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. And then the writer tells us, he summarizes what they did. What was the evil? Now, there's a lot of possible evil that people can do. But in this particular occasion, in this particular text, we see two aspects of their evil. What does it say there? It says they forgot Yahweh their God, and they served other gods. They forgot Yahweh and served other gods. Let's quickly consider the sin of these people. First of all, what does it mean that they forgot Yahweh? Does it mean that they completely lost any ability to recall anything about him? What's that tent about in Bethel? What's that tabernacle thing down in Bethel? What's that all about? I've totally forgotten what that is. No, that's not what it's about. That's not what it's saying there. You know, why does everybody I know, every one of my neighbors has got Yah in their name. What's up with that? Oh, yeah, Yahweh. No, it's not that they have unable to recall or unable to remember. And in fact, the text itself proves to us that the word forget here does not mean unable to remember for whom do they call out to during their time of distress by name according to the text we see there in verse 9 that when they are in distress they cry out to Yahweh they haven't forgotten him in the sense that they can't remember who he is so what does this mean We've got to understand that in the the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, this idea of uh, uh, forget is kind of the opposite of the biblical idea of know. Remember the old King James Version, and Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and gave birth, and they called his name Cain? That idea of knowing, that intimate knowledge of, that close relationship with. The idea of forgot here is kind of the opposite they have pulled back from that close relationship. They have pulled back from that intimacy. They have pulled back from that knowledge of him. It also has the idea of choosing to behave as though the past didn't happen. To forget Yahweh, to forget God, is to act in the present like the past didn't happen. Not that you don't remember it happening, it's just that you're acting like you don't remember it happened. And by the way, this is a great reminder of what we see on the flip side of forgetting. Where else does the Old Testament speak of forget forgetting? Well, is it not with regard to how God remembers or actually fails to remember our sin? God does not remember. He does not call to mind. He forgets the iniquity of his people, the, the Bible tells us. Is the omniscient one actually capable of not knowing something? Did he actually forget? He can't remember that I've sinned against him? That's not what that means. It means he chooses to behave as though it didn't happen. He chooses to behave as though it didn't happen. By the way, that's one of the lessons we need to learn from the book of Judges. We're only going to be looking at Judges in in a relatively brief study of the next few weeks. But if you read through Judges, you're going to see that it is a, a, a repetitive book. The pattern occurs over and over and over again. And why does it keep occurring over again? Because our God keeps choosing to forget that we have sinned against him. He keeps acting as though it didn't happen. He starts fresh each time. He does not hold against us our sin. If our God did not choose to behave that way toward us, there would be no repeating pattern in the book of Judges. We would sin, he would save, we would sin, he would reject, end of story. That the pattern occurs over and over again is a testament to our sinfulness, but it is also a testament to God's forgiveness. They forgot Yahweh, their God. They acted like he, the past did not happen. Now, we also see that they served other gods. We've got to be a little careful here that we don't read too much into this. <clears throat> there is definitely in the Old Testament an overlap between the word serve and the word worship. But this particular word, this word here in the Hebrew, avad, does not have any religious connotation to it. Out of context. And and, and in fact, most of the places where it shows up, it means simply to toil, to work. And in fact, specifically, it can mean to till the soil, to work as a farmer works. It's physical, manual labor. So what's being said here is not that they went to the wrong church, They went to Baal's church instead of Yahweh's church. They worshipped in the wrong way or in the wrong place. That's not what's being said. Rather, they worked, they toiled, they served Baal. Their physical efforts, their day in and day out activities were in service of Baal rather than Yahweh. What they did promoted Baal rather than Yahweh the way they spent their time, the way they spent their money, the way they they interacted with their neighbors served Baal rather than Yahweh. It is a warning to us to think about how we work, how we toil, how we spend our time. Does it serve God Or does it serve other gods? Does it serve Jesus? Or does it serve self? The people sinned. They forgot Yahweh and they served other gods. And then they fell into servitude. There in verse 8 we see this idea of them falling into servitude. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of Cushan uh, uh, Rishatham king of Mesopotamia, and the people of Israel served Hushan rishathaim eight years. They fell in, because of their sin, they fell into servitude. You know, this is a pattern we find over and over again in life. When we refuse to serve Jesus, we will end up serving something else, you're going to serve something in this life. You're going to work for something. You simply can't do otherwise. There's no way to not do this. So the question becomes, who will you serve? Or whom will you serve? Whom will you, I don't know. I'm not an English major here. You put in the M or take it out as appropriate. Who will you serve? Will it be Jesus or will it be the other gods? They fell into the service because they refused to serve their God. They had to serve this human king, this earthly God. It's an interesting uh, thing going on here. Uh, uh, His name, uh, if you translate it literally, means uh, he's the king of double evil or double wickedness. Probably not the way his parents named him. All right? That's probably uh, 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 the, the moniker that the Israelites gave him. That he was a doubly wicked man. And because they wouldn't serve the righteous God, they had to serve this doubly wicked king. The people of God must serve someone. And either it will be the loving king, the compassionate king, the gracious king, or it will be the evil king's of this earth. There was sin, there was servitude, and then there was supplication in verse 9. They cried out to Yahweh. They cried out to Yahweh. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. We'll come back around to that supplication. There was sin verse 7, there was servitude in verse 8, there was supplication in verse 9, and then in verses 10 and 11 we see serenity. The Lord saves them and the people live under God's appointed judge and they live at peace. There was rest. So the land had rest 40 years. A long time of blessing. Remember that the promised land, where they are now occupying, was always to be a land of rest. The goal was to get there and to be able to rest, to not have to serve Egypt any longer and the pharaohs any longer, to not have to wander in the wilderness any longer, to be able to get there and to rest. And what we have here is a play on that. The the writer is pointing out to us, they, for a time, actually lived in the land the way they were supposed to. They lived in the land the way it was meant to be lived in. And what do we see as key there? that they did so when they lived under God's judge. When God's appointed judge was over them. You know, we have a tendency to look at the book of Judges and think of it as this account of warriors, this account of military leaders. But they're called judges for a reason. And we see here what happens when Othniel uh, is appointed. The first thing is not that he led in battle... And then came back home and be, they had bade him, the judge, they said, okay, you, you want our war for us, so we'll listen to you. But rather what we see there is, uh, 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 verse 10, the spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. Then he led them out to war. First he got the internal problems in, uh, in better shape. First he cleaned house from the inside. He judged Israel. Do you remember where this goes back to? Do you remember the problem? Go back quite a you know, many, many years earlier. They're, they're, they're out in the wilderness, they've left Egypt, and they're having all kinds of conflicts. They have questions about how do we iron, oh, there's certain things. The Ten Commandments have been given. Clearly, murder is wrong, but but what does it mean to to, to live that out? You know, they're wrestling with the what does it mean to hate your brother? And Jesus comes along, you know, centuries later and says, if you hate your brother, you've violated the sixth commandment. You've murdered him. But when the commandments were first given, they weren't, it wasn't all clear to them yet. So they have to have these things judged. There are disputes. There are disagreements. There are different philosophies, different approaches. And they go, remember, at first they're going all to Moses, and overwhelming Moses, and Moses' father-in-law comes along and says, you can't do this. Too many people, you can't possibly settle all their disputes. Appoint judges over smaller groups to help iron these things out. Godly men who will hear these things that are not clear, they'll go to the word of God, they'll pray before God, they'll together try to figure this out and they'll render a judgment. And what we see now is that when the people lived under those judgments, when they lived under those God-appointed judges, they lived at peace and there was rest in the land. They live the way they were supposed to live and meant to live. This is not easy. I was 22 right out of college, my first teaching job. And I had a run-in with a parent. I'd had a discussion, it was a Christian school and I had a discussion with a student and... Uh, the discussion went well, the student went home, the parent came in, the parent was not at all happy with what I had said to their son. And they began to, to uh, uh, come after me and, and, and attack me as I perceived it. And I got very defensive, and I kept trying to point out that I was right. And to this day, I would argue that from strictly the doctrinal point being discussed, I was right. But I had used poor judgment about how to handle the situation, about how to address the student, about when to do that, and how to respect the parents, even though they differed with me and, and, and they were wrong with regard to their understanding of the Scripture. Nevertheless, they were the parents. And first the principal came to me, a man I respected greatly, and he said, Scott, you've got to let it go. But I can't let it go. I'm right. (laughs) And a few board members came to me, Scott, you got to let it go. But why would I let it go? I'm right. And eventually it built up to a point where my job was on the line. And I had to make a decision. Am I going to do what is right in my own eyes? Or am I going to listen to the authorities that God has put over me? And what it comes down to is it, a question of pride. At 22 years old, how wise do I think I am? Do I really think I know more than my boss, these board members, my fellow teachers? It really is a question of pride. You want to know why I know it's pride? Because I, when I find, uh, let, uh, I was so angry at having to let go of having to drop it, of having to admit that I had handled it incorrectly, that there was a wiser way to take this up. And I I couldn't believe how angry I was to the point of angry tears because of my pride. Because I had to admit that I was wrong. But, but, peace was then made. Relationships were then mended. I began to grow in in a new and develop in a new way. Began to reunite with those parents. Began to reunite with that student. Because the authorities over me judged what I was doing to be unwise, and God in his grace to me humbled me painfully in a difficult process, but he humbled me. I can't say that's happened every time it needed to, (laughs) but it happened on that occasion. There was serenity in the land because they lived under God's appointed judges because they did what others said they should do rather than doing what was right in their own Finally, we see stupidity. There was sin, there was servitude, there was supplication, there was serenity, and there's stupidity. In the original text of the scripture, in the Hebrew Bible, there's no punctuation. There are no verse markings. We don't exactly know where one sentence ends and when the next one begins. So it is completely reasonable to see the beginning of 12 as both the tie-up to the previous section and the beginning of the next section. It actually connects the two together. And so what do we see? Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They return to their bad habits. When the godly judge over them is gone, they go back to doing what they think is right, what they think is best, and they go back to doing evil. What is the pattern of God's people in this text? It is a pattern of sin, servitude, supplication, serenity, and stupidity. They do what is evil. They serve some ungodly, evil, earthly power because of it, as a consequence of it. They cry out to Yahweh. They have a time of peace when he saves them. And then they go right back to doing the same thing over again. Sin Servitude, supplication, serenity, and stupidity. What is the pattern of God that we see set forward in this text? What do we see about God and learn of Him here? First of all, we see His anger. And I'm going to make three points about what we see of God here Uh, anger, compassion, and salvation. Sorry, they don't alliterate. Anger, compassion, salvation. ACS, American Chemical Society. You can see my background. Anger, compassion, and salvation. First, the anger of God there in verse 8. Therefore, the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel. And the manifestation of his anger is oppression. God is angry at sin and at sinners. God is angry at sin and at sinners. Ultimately, sin is defiance of God. It is saying, I will do what I want. I will not do what you have told me to do. And it is shaking our fist at God and saying, no, I'm going to do my own thing. And that angers God. It's not like the anger we have. Yes, we get angry when we don't get our way. When things don't go the way we want, we get angry. But our anger is almost always, not always but almost always couched in not a holiness or a righteousness, but in a selfishness. I wanted it to be this way. And it didn't go this way. And now I'm angry. Because I didn't get my way. Regardless of whether or not my way conforms to what is right. But God's way conforms to what is right. God wants it to be done the right way. Now, we all think our way is the right way. What's the old saying? Great minds think like me. We all think our way is the right way. But the truth is that the right way is God's way by definition. And God is angry when that is not followed. Not because he's throwing a tantrum, not because he didn't get what he wanted, not because he didn't get his way, but because he is holy, he is righteous. And when sin happens, it alienates us from God. And we saw a couple of weeks ago, God created us because of his great love. He wants us to love him, and he wants to love us, and he is Anger because that relationship is broken. Imagine a marriage where one spouse uh, has an affair, commits adultery. The other spouse is angry. And part of that anger might be uh, 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 the, 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 the pain and the feeling of betrayal, but part of that anger is that sense of the relationship being damaged. I love you. And I wanted our relationship to be a good one, and you have trounced it. That's the anger God feels toward sin and sinners. And he brings in the king of Mesopotamia to rule over them for a time. And we want to see it. Again, it, we're so used to it. I think some of us are so steeped in the Bible that we miss this. It's become commonplace to us. But the author is trying to make sure we understand that the conquest by the king of Mesopotamia was not just the, the normal events of the, uh, of the econo- economic and, and social and military uh, milieu of the day. Well, that's just what happens. One nation conquers another. No, he's trying to remind us that these things are under God's control. These happen for some, uh, a greater reason. We see when the kingdom is divided under Solomon, later in the book of K- uh, uh, Kings, we see that the text in Kings tells us that it happens because of Solomon's sinful heart, and a text tells us that it happens because of political machinations between Solomon and Rehoboam. In other words, there can be an, a, a, an earthly reason but that doesn't preclude the fact that there can be a divine reason behind the scenes. And he, the author wants to make sure we know that that's happening. It is a reminder. You have to ask yourself, why is this happening? I'm going through a tough time. Things are uh, uh, oppressing me. I am serving something I don't want to be serving in this life. Now, there are times that it's not a punishment, it's simply a test for our maturity and our growth, but there are times that it is God's discipline, God's punishment. We must always be asking ourselves, why? What's the deeper? What's going on behind this? What has happened in my life? Where have I sinned that this is happening? We see God's compassion Verse 9, God's compassion, they cry out to him. I told you we'd come back and talk more about that idea of crying out, let's do so now. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. God's compassion. Now this Hebrew word for crying out, za'ak, za'ak. Let me talk a little bit about this word. Here's the things it can mean. It can be just a, a crying out for help. You know, so back on on ancient Hebrew television, when the little old lady fell and she couldn't get up on her own and had to push the little button, she would zaak, she would call out for help. Help I have fallen and I can't get up. Zaak. It can be a call to a military formation. Everybody get in line, everybody line up. Form the ranks. Take order. It can be a, a a summoning of the armed forces come together from the far stretches of the land and prepare for battle. And it can be a battle cry itself. Za'ach, charge. But here's what it never means. Not one time in the 60 plus uses that this word occurs in the Old Testament does the word inherently on its own, apart from the context, mean repentance. It does not mean repentance. Why does that matter? Because we have a tendency to read the book of Judges, and they cried out to the Lord, and we tend to see here, oh, they're finally sorry for their sins. They're repenting. They're relenting. They're saying, yes, God, we will follow your way. And then God relents and comes to save them. But that's not what the passage says. That's our reading into it, things that are not there. It simply says they cried out to Yahweh. Not they cried out in repentance. We don't like serving the king of Mesopotamia. We're miserable. We're unhappy. The discipline you've put on us is killing us. It is brutal. And we hate it. But there is no nuance in this passage of repentance. God saves them. Not because they've gotten it all right. Not because they've fixed themselves. Not because they have finally been humbled. But because he can't take it anymore. Because he has grown tired of seeing his people suffer. Because the discipline has worn him out. Because of his compassion. Because of his love for his people. Because he doesn't want them to go through this any longer. Because he loves them. The discipline is suspended. Not because they got it right, but because God is compassionate and gracious and merciful. You know, there's an interesting reaction to the sovereignty of God. We act like it is God being mean, God ruling over us with an iron fist and not letting us have our way, not letting us have what we want predestination, that God would choose to save some. Oh, what an ugly word. You know, in the New Testament, predestination is used five times. Five times. One of those is a reference in Acts to the idea that God predestined Jesus to die. Now, let me ask you, is that use of the word predestination, is that God being mean to us? God being nasty, God being hard, difficult to get along with. No! He predestined his son to die for us. The other four occurrences of the word predestination, in all four of them, the context is not a description of God's love. In love, he predestined us. One time he predestined Jesus to die. The other four... It's a description of God's love. God loves his people. He loved these sinful, stupid people. And when they cried out under the discipline he was administering, his heart was broken. His compassion was stirred. His mercy was kindled. And he acted to save them. Not because they had suddenly become worthy, but because he loves. That's the account here. And if we see that word cry out and we think repentance, we're going to miss the importance of this story. And then there is salvation. We have the anger of God in verse 8. We have the compassion of God in verse 9. And then we see his salvation. He sends Othniel. He sends this this, uh, uh, judge slash redeemer uh, um, slash savior. You know, back in chapter 2, verse 16, when we looked at uh, 2 a few weeks ago, uh, um, we saw this. Uh, 2.16, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. We saw, we said that was going to be the the pattern for the book. Kind of the, chapter 2 was the visitor center. You go there first so you can understand the rest of what's coming. And now we see that pattern being fulfilled here. He saved them. Othniel becomes the first of many in the book of Judges. Who will be typical of the Christ. Typical of the Messiah. Uh, uh, illustrations, if you will. Pictures of what the Christ would be like. One sent by God to step in and save us. To throw off our earthly overlords. To throw off the, the master of double evil. So that we could live At peace. One who does not merely throw off the evil uh, 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 Lord over us and then walk away and leave us to our own devices, but who reigns over us. He is both Savior and Lord. He is both Savior and Judge. We don't just have Jesus to set us free from sin, and then he leaves us so that we can, on our own, just muddle through this life. It's one of the reasons the church is so important, because it is the body of Christ. It is him, here on the earth, providing for us the needed judges to guide us. Those who can come alongside of us in Bible studies, in women's fellowship groups, and in the elders. And so many other ways. Those who can come alongside of us and say, no, that's not the way to go. Here's what the Word of God says about that. Here's how to live in that situation. Let me share with you what I have found on that. And us turning from our doing what is right in our own eyes and submitting and going, Lord, thank you for speaking through your church to me. Now let me live under that. Let me live according to that. That's the Savior we have, one who both frees us and leads us, one who is both a uh, uh, Lord, Savior and Lord, freer and ruler. And that is the pattern we see here in Othniel, and that is the pattern we have throughout the book of Judges. You know, it's interesting, on this Communion Sunday, we have before us the Lord's table. We're reminded by it. We see in it the, the marks of these things here. We see in this table a reminder that our God gave his Son, one whose body was broken, whose blood was shed, who died in our place, to free us from the double evil that ruled over us. But who continues with us? We have these elements to remind us that this is not merely a past event. This is not merely something that happened way back then. But this continues to be central to our lives. We must continue to walk in him. We must continue to walk under him. We must continue to be obedient to him so that we might enjoy the rest promised in this table. It's the reason why, in one of his earliest writings, as Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he spends a great deal of time talking about this table so that the Christians would know the benefit they have here. A benefit of, of having Christ commune with us and us with Him. And communing through Him with the Heavenly Father. Let me read what Paul said to that church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 22. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. If you are here this morning and you have made at some point in your life a public proclamation of your faith in Jesus Christ, and you are, so far as you are able, rightly connected to his church, then this is for you. It is his presence with you. It is his continuation in your life that you may live in peace. That you may live in the rest that the people enjoyed under his reign. If you have not connected yourself to Jesus Christ in that way, then participate in the prayer. Participate in the time we spend enjoying this table. But do not partake of these elements. Rather, partake of Christ. And if you're unsure what that means or how that works, talk to me afterwards. Talk, talk to one of my fellow elders. We would love to share more with you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this table. We thank you for this visual, uh, 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 sensory reminder of how you continue in our lives, how you continue to be a, a part of who we are, our everyday existence. Lord, we thank you that you have not just set us free from sin, but that you rule over us, you judge us, even as Othniel judged the people of old. And Lord, we ask for the rest that they enjoyed. We ask for the benefit of your reign in our life. And Lord, we recognize that it is our pride that gets in the way of that happening. It is our stubbornness, our stiff neck attitude. So Lord, we ask for a measure of your humility. And we thank you for the Christ. We thank you for his work in our lives. And we thank you for what you will continue to do in us through him. We pray this in his name. Amen.